Section 27 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 5 Rejection and Protest An Historical Sketch, Part 4. Freedom Now and Civil Rights Laws. As the direct action tactics took more dramatic form, as the civil rights groups began to articulate the needs of the masses and draw some of them to their demonstrations, the protest movement in 1963 assumed a new note of urgency, a demand for complete freedom now. Direct action returned to the northern cities, taking the form of massive protests against economic, housing, and educational inequities, and a fresh wave of demonstrations swept the South, from Cambridge, Maryland to Birmingham, Alabama, Northern Negroes launched street demonstrations against discrimination in the building trade unions, and the following winter school boycotts against de facto segregation. In the North, 1963 and 1964 brought the beginning of the waves of civil disorders in northern urban centers. In the South, incidents occurred of brutal white resistance to the civil rights movement, beginning with the murders of Mississippi Negro leader Medgar Evers and of four Negro schoolgirls in a church in Birmingham. These disorders and the events in the South are detailed in the introduction to Chapter 1, The Profiles of Disorder. The massive anti-Negro resistance in Birmingham and numerous other southern cities during the spring of 1963 compelled the nation to face the problem of race prejudice in the South. President Kennedy affirmed that racial discrimination was a moral issue, and asked Congress for a major civil rights bill. But a major impetus for what was to be the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the March on Washington in August 1963. Early in the year, A. Philip Randolph issued a call for a March on Washington to dramatize the need for jobs and to press for a federal commitment to job action. At about the same time, Protestant, Jewish, and Catholic churches sought and obtained representation on the March Committee. Although the AFL-CIO National Council refused to endorse the March, a number of labor leaders and international unions participated. Reversing an earlier stand, President Kennedy approved the March. A quarter of a million people, about 20% of them white, participated. It was more than a summation of the past years of struggle and aspiration. It symbolized certain new directions, a deeper concern for the economic problems of the masses, more involvement of white moderates and new demands from the most militant, who implied that only a revolutionary change in American institutions would permit Negroes to achieve the dignity of citizens. President Kennedy had set the stage for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. After his death, President Johnson took forceful and effective action to secure its enactment. The law settled the public accommodations issue in the South's major cities, its voting section, however, promised more than it could accomplish. 
Martin Luther King and SCLC dramatized the issue locally with demonstrations at Selma, Alabama in the spring of 1965. Again, the national government was forced to intervene, and a new and more effective voting law was passed. Failures of Direct Action Birmingham had made direct action respectable. Selma, which drew thousands of white moderates from the north, made direct action fashionable. Yet as early as 1964, it was becoming evident that, like legal action, direct action was of limited usefulness. In deep south states like Mississippi and Alabama, direct action had failed to desegregate public accommodation in the sit-ins of 1960-61. A major reason was that Negroes lacked the leverage of the vote. The demonstrations of the early 1960s had been successful principally in places like Atlanta, Nashville, Durham, Winston-Salem, Louisville, Savannah, New Orleans, Charleston, and Dallas, where Negroes voted and could swing elections. Beginning in 1961, Robert Moses of SNCC, with the cooperation of CORE and NAACP, established voter registration projects in the cities and county seats of Mississippi. He succeeded in registering only a handful of Negroes, but by 1964 he had generated enough support throughout the country to enable the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which he had created, to challenge dramatically the seating of the official white delegates from the state at the Democratic National Convention. In the black ghettos of the North, direct action also largely failed. Street demonstrations did compel employers, from supermarkets to banks, to add Negroes to their workforce in northern and western cities, and even in some southern cities where the Negroes had considerable buying power. However, separate and inferior schools, slum housing, and police hostility proved invulnerable to direct attack. New Directions Although Negroes were being hired in increasing numbers, mass unemployment and underemployment remained. As economist Vivian Henderson pointed out in his testimony before the Commission, no one can deny that all Negroes have benefited from civil rights laws and desegregation in public life in one way or another, the fact is, however, that the masses of Negroes have not experienced tangible benefits in a significant way. This is so in education and housing. It is critically so in the area of jobs and economic security. Expectations of Negro masses for equal job opportunity programs have fallen far short of fulfillment. Negroes have made gains. There have been important gains but the masses of Negroes have been virtually untouched by those gains. Faced with the intransigence of the Deep South and the inadequacy of direct action to solve the problems of the slum dwellers, Negro protest organizations began to diverge. The momentum towards unity, apparent in 1963, was lost. At the very time that white support for the protest movement was rising markedly, Militant Negroes felt increasingly isolated from the American scene. 
on two things however all segments of the protest movement agreed one future civil rights activity would have to focus on economic and social discrimination in the urban ghettos and two while demonstrations would still have a place the major weapon would have to be the political potential of the black masses by the middle of the decade many militant negro members of sncc and corps began to turn away from american society and the middle-class way of life cynical about the liberals and the leaders of organized labor they regarded compromise even as a temporary tactical device as anathema they talked more of revolutionary changes in the social structure and of retaliatory violence and increasingly rejected white assistance they insisted that negro power alone could compel the white ruling class to make concessions yet they also spoke of an alliance of negroes and unorganized lower-class whites to overthrow the power structure of capitalists politicians and bureaucratic labor leaders who exploited the poor of both races by dividing them through an appeal to race prejudice at the same time that their activities declined other issues particularly vietnam diverted the attention of the country and of some negro leaders from the issue of equality in civil rights organizations reduced financing made it increasingly difficult to support staff personnel most important was the increasing frustration of expectations that affected the direct action advocates of the early nineteen sixties the sense of futility growing out of the feeling that progress had turned out to be tokenism that the compromises of the white community were sedatives rather than solutions and that the current methods of negro protest were doing little for the masses of the race as frustration grew the ideology and rhetoric of a number of civil rights activists became angrier one man more than any other a black man who grew up believing whites had murdered his father became a spokesman for this anger malcolm x who perhaps best embodied the belief that racism was so deeply ingrained in white america that appeals to conscience would bring no fundamental change black power in this setting the rhetoric of black power developed the precipitating occasion was the meredith march from memphis to jackson in june 1966 but the slogan expressed tendencies that had been present for a long time and had been gaining strength in the negro community black power first articulated a mood rather than a program disillusionment and alienation from white america and independence race pride and self-respect or black consciousness having become a household phrase the term generated intense discussion of its real meaning and a broad spectrum of ideologies and programmatic proposals emerged in politics black power meant independent action negro control of the political power of the black ghettos and its use to improve economic and social conditions it could take the form of organizing a black political party or controlling the political machinery within the ghetto without the guidance or support of white politicians 
where predominantly negro areas lacked negroes in elective office whether in the rural black belt of the south or in the urban centers black power advocates sought the election of negroes by voter registration campaigns by getting out the vote and by working for redrawing electoral districts the basic belief was that only a well-organized and cohesive block of negro voters could provide for the needs of the black masses even some negro politicians allied to major political parties adopted the term black power to describe their interest in the negro vote in economic terms black power meant creating independent self-sufficient negro business enterprise not only by encouraging negro entrepreneurs but also by forming negro cooperatives in the ghettos and in the predominantly black rural communities of the south in the area of education black power called for local community control of the public schools in the black ghettos throughout the emphasis was on self-help racial unity and among the most militant retaliatory violence the latter ranging from the legal right of self-defense to attempts to justify looting and arson in ghetto riots guerrilla warfare and armed rebellion phrases like black power black consciousness and black is beautiful enjoyed an extensive currency in the negro community even within the naacp and among relatively conservative politicians but particularly among young intellectuals and afro-american student groups on predominantly white college campuses expressed in its most extreme form by small often local fringe groups the black power ideology became associated with sncc and corps generally regarded today as the most militant among the important negro protest organizations they have developed different interpretations of the black power doctrine sncc calls for totally independent political action outside the established political parties as with the black panther party in lowndes county alabama it rejects political alliances with other groups until negroes have themselves built a substantial base of independent political power applauds the idea of guerrilla warfare and regards riots as rebellions corps has been more flexible approving the sncc strategy it also advocates working within the democratic party forming alliances with other groups and while seeking to justify riots as the natural explosion of an oppressed people against intolerable conditions advocates violence only in self-defense both groups favor cooperatives but corps has seemed more inclined toward job training programs and developing a negro entrepreneurial class based upon the market within the black ghettos old wine in new bottles what is new about black power is phraseology rather than substance black consciousness has roots in the organization of negro churches and mutual benefit societies in the early days of the republic the antebellum negro convention movement the negro colonization schemes of the nineteenth century dubois concept of pan-africanism 
Booker T. Washington's advocacy of race pride, self-help, and racial solidarity, the Harlem Renaissance, and the Garvey movement. The decade after World War I, which saw the militant, race-proud New Negro, the relatively widespread theory of retaliatory violence, and the high tide of the Negro support of Negro business ideology, exhibit striking parallels with the 1960s. The theme of retaliatory violence is hardly new for American Negroes. Most racial disorders in American history until recent years were characterized by white attacks on Negroes, but Negroes have retaliated violently in the past. Black power rhetoric and ideology actually express a lack of power. The slogan emerged when the Negro protest movement was slowing down, when it was finding increasing resistance to its changing goals, when it discovered that nonviolent direct action was no more a panacea than legal action, when CORE and SNCC were declining in terms of activity, membership, and financial support. This combination of circumstances provoked anger deepened by impotence. Powerless to make any fundamental changes in the life of the masses, powerless, that is, to compel white America to make those changes, many advocates of black power have retreated into an unreal world where they see an outnumbered and poverty-stricken minority organizing itself entirely separately from whites, and creating sufficient power to force white America to grant its demands. To date, the evidence suggests that the situation is much like that of the 1840s, when a small group of intellectuals advocated slave insurrections but stopped short of organizing them. The black power advocates of today consciously feel that they are the most militant group in the Negro protest movement, yet they have retreated from a direct confrontation with American society on the issue of integration, and by preaching separatism, unconsciously function as an accommodation to white racists. Much of their economic program, as well as their interest in Negro history, self-help, racial solidarity, and separation, is reminiscent of Booker T. Washington. The rhetoric is different, but the ideas are remarkably similar. The Meaning By 1967, whites could point to the demise of slavery, the decline of illiteracy among Negroes, the legal protection provided by the constitutional amendments and civil rights legislation, and the growing size of the Negro middle class. Whites would call it Negro progress, from slavery to freedom and toward equality. Negroes could point to the doctrine of white supremacy, its persistence after emancipation, and its influence on the definition of the place of Negroes in American life. They could point to their long fight for full citizenship when they had active opposition from most of the white population and little or no support from the government. They could see progress towards equality accompanied by bitter resistance. Perhaps most of all, they could feel the persistent, pervasive racism that kept them in inferior segregated schools, restricted them to ghettos, barred them from fair employment, provided double standards in courts of justice, 
inflicted bodily harm on their children and blighted their lives with a sense of hopelessness and despair in all of this and in the context of professed ideals negroes would find more retrogression than progress more rejection than acceptance until the middle of the twentieth century the course of negro protest movements in the united states except for slave revolts was based in the cities of the north where negroes enjoyed sufficient freedom to mount a sustained protest it was in the cities north and south that negroes had their greatest independence and mobility it was natural therefore for black protest movements to be urban based and until the last dozen years or so limited to the north as negroes migrated from the south the mounting strength of their votes in northern cities became a vital element in drawing the federal government into the defense of the civil rights of southern negroes while rural negroes today face great racial problems the major unsolved questions that touch the core of negro life stem from the discrimination embedded in urban housing employment and education over the years the character of negro protest has changed originally it was a white liberal and negro upper class movement aimed at securing the constitutional rights of negroes through propaganda lawsuits and legislation in recent years the emphasis in tactics shifted first to direct action and then among the most militant to the rhetoric of black power the role of white liberals declined as negroes came to direct the struggle at the same time the negro protest movement became more of a mass movement with increasing participation from the working classes as these changes were occurring and while substantial progress was being made to secure constitutional rights for the negroes the goals of the movement were broadened protest groups now demand special efforts to overcome the negroes poverty and cultural deprivation conditions that cannot be erased simply by ensuring constitutional rights the central thrust of negro protest in the current period has aimed at the inclusion of negroes in american society on a basis of full equality rather than at a fundamental transformation of american institutions there have been elements calling for a revolutionary overthrow of the american social system or for a complete withdrawal of negroes from american society but these solutions have had little popular support negro protest for the most part has been firmly rooted in the basic values of american society seeking not their destruction but their fulfillment end of section 27 recording by maria casper